0: Welcome to a very special episode of the Morrison's Tours Go Southampton podcast, and it's kind of stepping aside from Morrison's Tours today, because in this exciting new series, I'm going to get the opportunity to meet virtually at the moment, of course, and talk to experts in a particular site around Southampton or the surrounding area. Now today's expert goes by the name of Ursula Pierce and she has very very kindly um, agreed to come on to the podcast today to talk through the history of the military hospital that was built at Royal Victoria Country Park, Royal Victoria Hospital and this is going to be a site that's very much familiar to a lot of listeners. You might have been there, you may have been there with friends, family, um, you may have walked around the site, you may have explored it, and you may already know something about the history of the site. I can guarantee you this episode is going to teach you something new that you didn't already know, and it's going to be absolutely fascinating. I learned so many new things about Royal Victoria Country Park, about the site of the military hospital that... Although I've sort of read up on it to to know a bit about it, there was so much that I learned that was new information. And you guys are so lucky to be able to hear that. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, I hope this is the first in a a number of episodes where I get to speak to um, as many experts as possible. And if you're listening and you know uh, about a particular site and you fancy coming on, then please do get in touch. Um, And I really can't wait to have that opportunity. Over to Ursula Pierce and... I'd like to just take this opportunity again to thank her for the time she took to put this interview in practice and, and to take that time to talk to me this evening. And I hope you all enjoy and learn something new. Take care and enjoy the interview. Good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm here with Ursula Pierce, who is the Education and Heritage Manager at Royal Victoria Country Park. Um, thank you very much for coming on, Ursula, and, and coming on to talk to us at, um, with this podcast tonight and this this site that's so important locally, but just a fascinating place. Um, and I just wanted to start off and, and ask you about the site at uh, royal victoria first of all because i mean a, a lot of people have probably uh, listening have, have been to the the country park before or, or know certainly where it is but and have seen sort of the chapel that's still standing in the middle um some may know that that was the site of a, a military hospital some that might be new information too but i just want to start off by asking you sort of how why and and when the site of royal victoria was chosen to become a military hospital
1: Yes, actually, people often say, you know, why did they build a church in the middle of the fields there? And of course, they didn't, did they? I mean, as you said, the, the chapel was at the heart of the Royal Victoria Military Hospital. And that really came out of the conditions that were experienced by the soldiers during the Crimean War. So that 1854, 1856, that bit made really famous by Florence Nightingale and the reports that came back in the newspapers about the appalling conditions in the hospitals out in Turkey. Um, And it was really interesting that uh, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert in 1855 went and visited convalescent soldiers that had been brought back to the UK and were being cared for at the converted barrack hospitals um, in Kent, in, in places like Dover and Chatham. And again, they really weren't that impressed with what they saw. And Prince Albert looked out the window, apparently, and commented on the fact that money was being found to build a new prison for convicts, but that the same money couldn't be found to build a suitable hospital for convalescent soldiers. Surprisingly enough, less than two weeks later, the instructions went out to build a brand new purpose-built, military hospital for the british soldiers so it all goes to show it goes to have friends in high places so royalty and there we go mid 1850s in in the um following on from the crimean war so the plan was there to build um a brand new hospital for the soldiers
0: thanks very much and you mentioned about sort of these hospitals over in turkey and and in the crimea that were absolutely sort of appalling What, what about those hospitals made them such horrible places to be in
1: the The real difficulty was, I mean, it was it was overcrowding. You know, for, for a lot of it, it was sort of um, overcrowding in the in the hospitals in terms of not enough beds. Um, so people being packed very closely together, which obviously caused a great deal of, of infection to spread, of disease to spread, and poor sanitation as well. You have to remember, this is a time when people were still trying to, to figure out the causes of all sorts of infections and diseases and sort of the idea of dirty air still still being one that one that was there. And it was some of the statistical work, the mathematical work carried out by Florence Nightingale analysing some of those cases that really led to an understanding of, of you know the fact that a lot of the soldiers were dying more of disease than they were from the wounds that they'd had and trying to unpick some of those ideas as to what the causes were and so it was one of the things that was put in place when they were designing the hospital um, at, at Royal Victoria was what they were looking at the numbers of wards, the ideal number of beds to have in the wards, how far apart that they should be, and trying to look at issues um, to do with things like like ventilation, like sanitation, to try and avoid making some of those mistakes. Florence Nightingale didn't think they got it right um, at Royal Victoria. In fact, she was a really severe critic of the designs of the hospital. But the report that was submitted with the plans, um, but for the, the way that they were trying to get it set up, really did make it clear that they were certainly thinking about all of those sorts of issues to try and overcome the issues that had been made when converting a barracks into a hospital which was what it had before designing something purposely as a hospital this time
0: yeah really really interesting backstory to it and especially having florence nightingale's involvement a lot of people know the name florence nightingale and certainly won't know necessarily that she had such an influence on, on such a local level from from our point yeah, of view of
1: i mean she she really had nothing good to say about the hospital at all i mean obviously she was out in turkey still when the hospital was commissioned by queen victoria when the site at netley was selected when the plans were drawn up the the foundations were already underway when by the time she came back to the uk and she was shown the plans as a matter of courtesy um when she returned she visited uh, queen victoria um, and um, Sydney Herbert, who was the Secretary of State at War, was there. She was shown the plans for the hospital, and from that point onwards had nothing good to say about the place. As far as she was concerned, they picked the wrong site, they, um, they'd they chosen the, the sort of a, an inappropriate design. The hospital was designed to have two separate wings, a medical wing and a surgical wing um and all the wards came off the long central corridor quarter of a mile long that extended the full length of the hospital and what she would have preferred Florence Nightingale would have preferred is what they call the pavilion design where you have the corridor in the middle and rooms coming off each side and she felt that that would have created far better ventilation um it would have had more light so that the wards wouldn't have all been at the back of the hospital on the cold north side of the hospital Um, and that there would have been a much better circulation of fresh air. She said with the design they've chosen, all, with everything opening off the corridor, that all the germs would just sort of get mixed up in that ho- in that corridor and create a hospital atmosphere around all the rooms. She was really concerned about it and wrote endless reports. She tried to get the building work stopped. She tried to get the building work changed. She got the um, Lord Palmerston, who was the Prime Minister involved, got him to write to the to the War Office asking for the building work to be changed. I mean, she was sort of standing up there all the time and and her notes on hospitals. Just really goes on and on and on about Netley's wrong for this and it's wrong for that and it's wrong for the other, and yeah, nothing good to say about it ever.
0: Which it really is wasn't. A, bit nice. of
1: a local Hampshire celebrity it's not really what you want to hear. You know, you've <laughs> got this brand new purpose built hospital that you really want to show up and the look of the building is beautiful. You want to be able to show it off. The last thing you want is your celebrity nurse, Florence Nightingale, <laughs> holding it up as an example of what not to do. <laughs>
0: yeah not I ideal and just that's what sort of leads me on to my next question so i've read there was uh, um, at one point on time there an, an army sort of training medical facility based mm. at, at royal victoria as well so how did that sort of come about if if it was so, so damningly reflected on <laughs> florence nightingale?
1: well you have to try and work out how much florence, how much influence florence nightingale had in, in some quarters I, I think and no i mean in the the light of the Crimean War, one of the things, the messages that came out really strongly was the need to have properly trained medical officers for the army, rather than it being on a bit of a sort of a, an ad hoc basis and people doing their best without really really the understanding to back it up. And so um, the the commission decided that there should be a, put in place an army medical school. Now that opened up in Chatham. Um, initially and then it moved to Netley when the hospital opened in 1863 and all its senior staff came with it. And so that looked at training people in military medicine, in military surgery, in hygiene and in pathology to get that real all-round training that would equip them to go out to wherever the British Army was sent. And obviously at the height of the British Empire, you'd got people in parts of Africa, India, all over the world. They were coming across all sorts of new diseases um new infections there were w- uh, wounds from the battles that were, were that were taking place so they really needed to be equipped to deal with all of those and it was at netley that they got the foundations for that training so they'd already done um their their um, degree in in medicine or and and qualifications in surgery before they came to netley but it was just like an intensive course that put them through what they were going to need as military medical officers
0: Mm. Yeah, really interesting backstory to it as well. And and that sort of shows the progression of the site. So sort of from my understanding from Crimea War, we then sort of moved through the Boer War, Second Boer War and, and in towards the First World War. So thinking about sort of like the, the journey there and, in, and particularly into the First World War, how how did the hospital change your Royal Victoria?
1: So um I mean the, the Boer War period that you're talking about, sort of at the turn of the century. That was the first time that the hospital was filled to capacity. So that was about a thousand patients in 138 wards. Obviously, once you got into the First World War, um, the so the capacity really needed to increase. There were so many casualties coming in. Net- Position right on Southampton Water meant that it was one of the sort of the key landing sites for those most severely wounded soldiers that were brought back with blighty wounds. So, the, the wounds that brought them back to England. And um, so, what they were doing at Netley was they were acting a little bit like a clearing hospital. So, they were taking people in, they were doing some of that emergency surgery. Some people would stay for several days, weeks, months. Other people would be coming, be assessed, have some initial treatment, to be put back on trains and sent to hospitals elsewhere in the country. They were taken inland to leave the places on the coast free for the new casualties that were being brought in. So the hospital had to change and had to adapt to deal with those huge numbers of patients coming in. And the way they did that was to have temporary hospitals built by the Red Cross, hospitals in huts, like the field hospitals that were taken out to to France, out to Belgium. They had those set up at the back of the hospital site and it almost doubled the capacity, really, of what Netley was able to take on. So there was the British Red Cross Hospital, the Welsh Hospital, and the Irish Hospital. Now that's got nothing to do with the people that they treated, or even where the staff particularly came from. It was all to do with how the funding worked. So everything in those Red Cross hospitals could be sponsored from a bed, um, an entire hut of beds, um, pieces of equipment, everything could be sponsored by individuals, by villages, um, so it was fundraising across the whole of Wales that led to the Welsh hospital, which is where the war poet Wilfred Owen was treated when he first came back to England uh, with what we would now terms sort of PTSD, shell shock, neurasthenia, they called it, nervous exhaustion. He was initially assessed at net and treated in the Welsh hospital before being sent on to Scotland. So that was fundraising across Wales lord ivy from the guinness family donated what became called the irish hospital and then the british red cross hospital was was there was just fundraising all over the place for that so you can see that from the names of the huts things like the lincolnshire hut and the warwickshire hut and the Hertfordshire hut or the godman family bed You know, you have everything, say, everything that was sponsored. And people would be encouraged. Um, You know, you'd have people going around and selling raffle tickets and fundraising events, sales of handicraft exhibits. So the soldiers that were convalescing would get involved in doing paintings and embroidery. And that work would be sold sold to raise money for the hospital because there was such a huge amount that was needed.
0: It's really, really interesting to hear because that's certainly... An aspect of history that's often sort of left out of the history books it's kind of like a day-to-day existence of the site and how the funding was secured and it's yeah really interesting to have that um that background information to it and you mentioned a bit about sort of treating soldiers with um the likes of ptsd as we call it now shell shock as they called it at the time um world war one as sort of my students learn about was um, also sort of the, the turning point in new technologies being developed so things like x-ray machines blood transfusions leg splints those sorts of things how much of that do we see taking place during world war one at royal victoria
1: yeah a huge amount actually i mean it's one thing and you, t- you talked about x-rays actually the be- um, some of the very early x-ray machines were used at netley and in fact on one of her i think on her last visit queen victoria had her hand x-rayed to to see how this new technology was working i don't don't know where the copy is of the x-ray but that'd be a fascinating (laughs) thing to see but yes of course so there was the x-ray department and then netley had um an electrical department electrical therapy nothing to do with of the treatment of some of the psychiatric illnesses that sometimes people is their initial thought of all that was what they were doing but it wasn't it was things like um the magnetic therapy so like we still use to do things like stimulating muscle to move um they had um magnets that would remove metal splinters and there was a newspaper report and someone talked about seeing these um these magnets that would take metal fragments out of people's eyes which is really quite sort of gruesome but obviously much nicer than having a surgeon going in with a scalpel to <laughs> deal right. with that so you had that you had the wards where they were swinging the legs so people in traction with the splints on to try and deal with the sort of the, the effect of the gunshot wounds to the femur that were you know it's so disabling for the people that survived and 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 obviously quite you know initially quite a lot of people didn't survive with with the gunshot wounds because of the infection that, that set in particularly with things like an open fracture in the leg um but it was also equipment like the um they had a continuous bath system that was used to treat the chemical burns from, well, obviously, from, from the gas attacks in World War One, and causing really dreadful burns to the skin. So people had, and it does look like they're sitting in a bathtub with a blanket over the top, and it was the water that came in at one end and washed through, and at the other end as a continuous process to deal with, um, with those. They had whirlpool baths, so think jacuzzi, hot tub, Um, on that sort of scale for some patients if they needed that whole body treatment but also much smaller whirlpool baths that would be used for loosening joints and also to debride the skin so the dead skin that needs to be to be taken off rather than having it cut away um or, or rubbed away um by by a medical officer they could have their hand in the water say and that the the whirlpool action of the water would actually deal with some of that so it was amazing sort of developments in technology that were being that were being used and being applied to try and treat the huge range of um, of of wounds and of illnesses that they were seeing
0: yeah absolutely fascinating again insight into of so the, the practices that were taking place within the walls of of the structure, um, and then as I understand it, we've sort of talked about World War One, and then we've got the interwar period where I understand things sort of calmed down a little bit, and, and then we hit World War Two afterwards. And and how did the role of Royal Victoria's Hospital change between World War One and World War Two, and, and then into World War Two itself?
1: Yeah, so you're right. I mean, in, from World War Two, I mean the hospital obviously. By the time you had the evacuation of Dunkirk in 1940, from that point onwards, the hospital was back full to capacity again. So that would have been the first time since the end of the First World War, really, that it was it was full to capacity, um, and it stayed so right through until um, well, right through the rest of the war. But a really interesting thing that in January 1944, control of the hospital was handed over by Britain to the Americans. Um, It was handed over to the American military services for their medical services to use. Um, to give them that medical base on the South Coast ahead of the planned D-Day landing. So it was about six months before the D-Day landings actually took place. The American Army initially moved into the main hospital building, threw out their hands in horror at the state that it was in, and moved out into a single storey building at the back of the site, behind where the Red Cross hospitals had been. And it was the American Navy that then moved into the main building and set up um, as of their, their base hospital that they would use and they stayed in there uh, right right through until you know beyond the d-day uh, beyond the d-day landings the nurses you know I mean it, it's quite funny General Hawley was the American um sort of head of their military uh, of their medical services who took control of the hospital and talked about the fact that Britain was handing over one of its finest treasures. And yet the Navy nurses described it as a cold, damp monstrosity and unconducive to treating patients. You know, the the difference between the the sort of the the appearance on the surface of this beautiful building with what it was actually like to work in and the condition that the building was in. There was a a huge amount that the Americans had had to do. I mean, Netley hadn't had any bomb, direct bomb damage um, all through the Second World War, but what it did have was sort of the, the fallout, if you like, of the the bombing that took place in Southampton. So there were broken windows and tiles missing from the roof. And so it was quite generally run down. They needed to bring in all sorts of equipment to bring it up to a good standard, which they had done by D-Day. And the Navy nurses talk about the fact that in the lead up to D-Day, they knew that something was happening. Southampton Water was so busy with all the ships, obviously being right on on the water, you could see everything that was going on. And so they knew when the invasion had happened because everything was empty, everything was quiet. All of that action had stopped. And then they just had to wait and wait and wait. So obviously D-Day was um, 6th of June. Nothing happened at Netley on the 6th, the 7th, the 8th. Handful of patients started coming in on the 9th and 10th. And then on the 11th of June, so D-Day plus five, that was when things really started to happen. Ambulance after ambulance arriving, with um, patients from Omaha and Utah beaches in particular. 400 patients admitted in 24 hours on the on the 11th of June and then more in the days afterwards. So they had the operating theatres going round the, the clock. They'd set up additional operating theatres. They'd um, trained people to be able to work in those and they carried out 141 operations in just one 36-hour period, which is a staggering Uh, number to do with people bringing coffee and cheese sandwiches and things into the operating theatres for the staff because no one wanted to go off duty while there were so many patients to treat so it was really you know quite an amazing experience and so but all controlled by and run by the american military rather than the british so we'd we'd handed all of it over to, to them to use and it was only in, in july 1945 that actually britain took the control of the hospital back again
0: absolutely eye-opening in terms of it, the history of the site and it's again this is just just such an opportunity for people who maybe know about the site at royal victoria know the history there and, and know there's a hospital there but but don't know the story behind it and so thanks so much for bringing that to life for us and and one thing no, I'm sort you're of, welcome one, one thing I've picked up on, and, and from what I've read and sort of from, from a bit of what you've said tonight, Ashla, I um, understand that kind of like throughout the history of Royal Victoria, there's been quite a diversity in terms of the, the occupants, patients and, and staff. People come from sort of all over. It's not just that we've got people from Southampton that go and staff the hospital. It seems like it's very much from a, a p- perspective of both soldiers and staff across the world, across the British Empire, and and sort of wider than that, as you're talking about the Americans. So can you just tell us a little bit more about the, the history of that diversity behind the site and its occupants?
1: Yeah, I mean absolutely. So the the hospital, because it was run by the Royal Army Medical Corps, any member of the Royal Army Medical Corps could be posted to Netley in the same way that that, that soldiers today, you know, will be posted to a particular military base. People were posted to Netley. You didn't just go there because you were because you would live locally. My grandfather um, lived up in Leicester, and he was posted with the Army Medical Corps to Netley in the Second World War that's not anything to do with my being there at the site now. When I grew up somewhere completely different, but it's really interesting. that say he came from the Midlands and worked there, and anyone who watched um, Who Do You Think You Are with Jodie Whittaker uh, that was shown uh, last year, her great uncle who came from Lincolnshire came and worked at NETV as well. So people would come from right across across Britain to to work at the hospital, just depending on on how their posting happened um, to the site. But then people trained at Netley went and worked at, at hospitals around the world in places like Gibraltar, in Malta, wherever the British British Army had a base. And of course, that has meant right from the word go as well that people of those nationalities have also come back to work at Netley and um, and as patients as well. You know that those fighting with the Empire Commonwealth forces in the two World Wars came back to Netley for treatment. So. Uh, There were um, um, people like the... the, There was a large number of Indian soldiers and Nepalese, um, people from Australia, New Zealand, Canada. All of those forces came and, if they were wounded, were brought back to Netley for treatment. There were also some German prisoners of war who were brought to Netley for treatment in the First World War? Um, also, in the First World War, when Japan was part of the, the the Allied forces, a contingent of Japanese Red Cross nurses came. They they were held up as the example of, of you know, best practice really um, in nursing, and they came to act as, as sort of as mentors and to work alongside some of the British. So that started then. Um, you know, really continuing on from what had happened in the Victorian era, continued to the First World War. And obviously then in the Second World War, you know, we said we've talked about the Americans that came and worked here. And again, it was, you know, patients of all nationalities were brought back for treatment. It was, it, like say, it was one of the, the key places that people were brought to when they had those serious wounds, um, particularly in the two world wars that, that were brought here. And so they could, could literally come from anywhere in the world
0: yeah and and it is fascinating to explore that diversity in the history and and, you know again it's so significant for the local area and and one of the other places that i'm aware of that exists at royal victoria that some people may have sort of walked to if if they have been towards the back of the site are the commonwealth war cemeteries that are there the military cemeteries and um, i know from sort of experience at, at the school i teach at we run a trip annually to go and see the um, the Commonwealth war graves over in Belgium and, and Northern France in the First World War. And um, some people might not be aware that that's on their doorstep as well. So is there anything you can tell us about the sort of the um, the significance of, of those war cemeteries and, and, a, and a little bit more about how they came about and maybe some whose graves are there?
1: Yeah, sure. So Netley's had a cemetery as long as it's had a hospital. So initially, the cemetery that was there was for, to, to bury people who had perhaps been patients that had died or staff in the hospital and their families. So there are a number of, of graves from, from that era, sort of that late Victorian era of the hospital. not all of them with headstones. People couldn't always afford them. so a lot of those graves are unmarked, but we know that they're there. But then of course, yes, with the, the First World War, there are mm, just over 600 burials from the period of the first world war that are now looked after by the commonwealth war grace commission and 35 from the second world war obviously in the first world war it was much much harder for people to uh, to, to have uh the, the bodies of their of their loved one taken back home it was also very expensive you know they were charged per mile to have the bodies take taken back home which is why we've got a, a much larger number of them in the cemetery and then they're, they're organized sort of by religion so there's a, a roman catholic um area of the cemetery there's one for um sort of the the, the church of england type, um type burials there's one for non-conformists so sort of methodists they're, they're all sort of in these sort of neat little sections really and then done by date order so it's it's always quite easy to to find a burial when you want to well i say it's always quite easy to find a burial it's much easier now actually thanks to some, thanks to some students from wilden because a few years ago i did a project with a group of students and they actually mapped the cemetery for us and recorded which burial was in, you know, which number headstone in which row. So it's now much easier for someone to come and say to us, Oh, I'm trying to find this person and we can say, ah, oh, third row from the back, seventh headstone in. And that's because of the work that Wilden students did. So we're still very grateful for that. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's it's really interesting how how those burials are are there and the stories that they they tell about the, the people, you know, it's really easy to get caught up particularly in the numbers, you know, we talk about, oh yeah, we've got 637 burials, but you have to remember each of those 637 burials is a person. Mm. You know, it's like we're talking talking even now with all the um, sort of the COVID pandemic and the number of deaths, but each one of those is a person who had a family and a life and a background, and it's really interesting when you look into and do that research into some of those people and, and make sure that you remember that they are people, they're not just a name and a date on a headstone that they, you know, that the lives that they had. And I I remember one of the the, the students in Wilden, you know, talking about, she'd she'd chosen her person to research because the the name that was listed on the Commonwealth War Graves website just had Jay McLeod and a date. And she thought it was dreadful that she didn't even know that person's first name, let alone anything else. But through her research, She was able to find that he was Jack MacLeod. He was born in Scotland. He emigrated to Canada. She was able to find out about his wife, the job that he'd done, the regiment that he joined, and what had happened to him when he was involved in the Battle of the Somme and brought back here for back to Netley for treatment, and then died. And it was, you know, he really did come come back to life again, if you like. To the, the through the work that was done, and I think that's a really important thing to remember when you go go down to the cemetery. It's a beautiful place to go to, but I think it's the stories of some of the people that that are there that's the really important thing. And so, just remembering that they are real people and not just a a, a name and a number.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's such a strong message and such an important message as well. And and it's amazing to hear about the work of of some of the students of the past at, at Wilden And you know, if, if there ever was something that said to me be inspired how can i get involved if i'm a student in something to do with history what what an absolutely fantastic opportunity that our students taken advantage of there and, and how useful that work's been for the likes of you guys and, and for the likes of anyone who wants to know more about these people and their stories and, and absolutely preserve. i mean i so said that
1: that project was one called living memory and the idea was to that people do remember but particularly remember all the the war cemeteries that are out in france and belgium the big war cemeteries the famous war cemeteries but actually we've got people that 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 died back in this country we have our own war cemeteries and it's really important that we don't forget the ones that are on our doorstep just because they're not as as big and well known as as the ones abroad yeah
0: thank you so much for that and and yeah lovely lovely to have that message um, just as a sort of a, a closing question from me um, we sort of touched on the, the world war histories and the history of the site and obviously that isn't the case nowadays there isn't a military hospital standing now at royal victoria aside from the, the chapel that as i understand houses sort of the, um some of the um, artifacts some of the stories and some of the um, some of the history there so what sort of happened in the meantime how do we get from the end of world war Two and, and the hospital now being in the state it is today and, and well gone effectively
1: <laughs> and uh, <laughs> God, yes. So. I mean, I've, I've already said several times about, about things to do with the condition that the hospital was in. I mean, even as, even as early as 1900, people were talking about the need to bring the hospital up to a modern standard. And it seems to have been a gripe all the way through it. It just wasn't really serving its purpose. It, it didn't really work. Um, as Florence Nightingale had said, it didn't really work. It was good enough for a while, but, but not really suitable. And so after the Second World War, obviously, they didn't have the large numbers of casualties, which was a really good thing, but that meant that certain wards didn't even reopen. The hospital really fell into a decline. There were much better facilities that the army preferred to use elsewhere. Um, and so the decision was made by 1958 that that they would move out of the, out of the main hospital building and really decide what to, what to do with the site. In fact, some of the last patients at the hospital weren't even British soldiers. They were Hungarian refugees in 1956 and they were being looked after by the Red Cross rather than by anyone to do with the British military. They just were using the site. Um, so the, the, the patients moved out in 1958 and the army were trying to decide what to do with the building um and meanwhile of course it was just becoming more dilapidated there was a fire in the central building on one of the wings in 1963 and then flood damage caused when pipes froze and burst that winter at which point they just decided they'd they'd had enough and um, there had been all sorts of incidents and things and they just decided to to knock the whole thing down <laughs> um and it's not something that they would be able to do now and obviously we've got the the chapel is now a listed building and and now the whole building would have been been a listed building but it wasn't at that point that wasn't really really a thing um and so yeah the whole thing just got demolished the the only reason that the chapel is there is that somebody decided that the fact that queen victoria had had worshipped in the chapel that then various other members of the royal family had been really heavily involved with the site and visited the site, but that somehow made it a royal chapel. It's not a designated royal chapel, but we'll take it. <laughs> it's good enough. If that's the reason why we've actually got the chapel today, then you know I'm happy to, to to go with it. It's it's not really a royal chapel, but but that was the reason that was used to to for that not to be knocked down with the rest of it. And I'm just really pleased that. But that is what we've got you know there's there's a a few other a couple of buildings but that's yeah that's all that's left of the 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 beautiful main building of the hospital
0: yeah thank you so much for that i mean we've got a limited amount of time obviously we can't necessarily cover absolutely everything about history so i'd absolutely encourage anyone who is listening to go and and find out more go and ask questions go to libraries go online go and, and i think hansgov potentially is it hansgov website have um some yeah. fantastic resources and and bits and pieces you can access online to find out more um and and, and more in-depth detail about the site and, and absolutely in a post-covid world if we get get to that stage and people are listening still then um yeah, post-COVID, well, go go to Royal Victoria and, and absolutely sort of just embrace the history that's around you, I think. And go to the cemetery and pay your respects and just be around the site and, yeah, just, just know what history is around. Um, that, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for everything you've sort of spoken to us about tonight, Astrid. It's so eye-opening for me, and I'm sure it will be for anyone who's listening as well. Um, just before we sort of close off for this episode, is there anything we've not spoken about about the history of the site that you feel we need to cover and should be covered before we move on?
1: Thing, the only thing to remember is the fact that actually Metley had its own separate hospital, the psychiatric hospital, we, we haven't talked about that at all, and it was really important, particularly in the First World War, but it was also, that's the part of the site that stayed open the longest um, um, from the Second World War onwards. In fact, that didn't close until sort of 1978, 1979. And, you know, we, we get tied up in the idea we, we think about with, with soldiers and um, psychiatric illness that we, we talk, we're talking PTSD and shell shock. But actually, those hospitals dealt with an, an awful lot of other things as well. So it was it was everything from sort of alcohol and drug abuse, but through to things like depression, anxiety, phobias that they were treating there. And that's another really interesting part of the hospital's history and the bit that actually takes Netley to something that's not just for the for the british army because actually that part of the hospital was used to train the psychiatric nurses from the the army the navy and the air force so all three of the british military services had their training there and i think it's say it's an an underrated part of the hospital but it's certainly the more forgotten part really of the hospital if one focuses on The the two world wars, which you know quite rightly, that's when the site was at its biggest and probably its most valuable. But actually, the there was an awful lot of of work that that went on into to a whole range of 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 mental illnesses, the the psychiatric treatments and things, and much wider than than you might initially think of when you're when you're looking at them. That's
0: something to bear
1: in mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that's kind of what I want to achieve with this podcast overall is those stories and those. Elements of history that we shouldn't forget about, that our local history that are important to preserve that memory, and you know to hope that by opening people's eyes to that, whether it's through a podcast, whether it's by visiting the site, and, and however we do that, then to be able to keep that alive. And yeah, I think thanks so much for sharing that as well. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of it for me tonight. I just say thanks so much for your time to to come on to this yeah, podcast. Much. And talk thank you. History, really, really appreciated, um, and we look forward to learning more about the site in the future. I'm sure. Thanks very much. Thank you